Good afternoon. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty at the University of Minnesota, Department of Political Science, and the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. And I also direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School, which is bringing you today's program. And I just want to uh, set the scene. We're going to jump off right into this terrific conversation today. Uh, I want to give you a heads up. We've got some uh, programs coming up. Um, we do a lot of programs on healthcare, health reform. We've got one coming up July 23rd at noon central. It's looking at uh, the possibility of some real innovations in medical care delivery and healthcare uh, as a result of COVID-19. Uh, we've got some terrific people for that. One of the things that the center has done is create one of the first professional training programs in election administration. If you're someone who would like to start a new career, uh, there's a generational turnover. You might want to look at this. If you're someone in election administration, this is a great way to upskill. Um, and we've got a lot of programs, courses coming up in the fall. Uh, and July 27th, we're going to have an informational session that will include alumni of this program. It's one of the first online uh, programs bringing together the top talent in the country as instructors. Uh, and that's July 27th. We've got a program coming up on July 29th on the um, uh, rise and, and kind of um, decline of conservatism as a populist um, uh, uh, enduring movement. Uh, Peter Weiner, who worked in the Reagan administration as a prominent conservative will be on, uh, with, on that panel with uh, David Hopkins, who is a political scientist at Boston College. And then coming up August 13th, we've got a program on election security. Yes, there are foreign powers trying to uh, tamper with our elections. We've got some terrific people uh, gonna be joining that panel. Um, and I'm very, uh, and I wanna let you know that in today's conversation, which we're now gonna be moving towards, um, we welcome your participation. You'll see at the bottom of your screen, there's a Q and A button. Uh, please give us questions. We're going to get to as many as possible. Um, I'm delighted now to introduce the moderator of today's conversation, my very talented uh, friend and colleague in the Department of Political Science, Dr. Michael Minta. Thank you, uh, Professor Jacobs. Thanks, Larry. It's great. Um, Great introduction. Um, so uh, we're very excited. We have a very distinguished panel here today to really talk about uh, Black Lives Matter and how it'll impact the upcoming elections. Uh, we'll spend most of our time mostly talking about the presidential elections, but we can also talk about some down ticket races like uh, congressional races, uh, state, and even maybe some local um, uh, elections. So, so we're pleased to have this distinguished panelists of my colleagues join us, many who are award-winning authors and scholars in, in our field of political science. So our first panelist will be uh, uh, Christopher Parker, Professor uh, Christopher Parker, who's a professor in political science at the University of Washington, Seattle. Um, he's written several books relating to topics such as Black veterans and their role in the civil rights movement and the rise of the Tea Party. Uh, he's working on a new title, look, I, really, I like this title, uh, The Great White Hope, Donald Trump, Race and the Crisis of American Democracy. So welcome, uh, Professor Parker. 
Um, we also have Professor LaFleur Stevens Dugan, who is an assistant professor in political science at Princeton University. Uh, her research interests include racial attitudes, black politics, and public opinion. Um, she has a new book that's out, and I, I can't wait to purchase it. It's called Race to the Bottom, How Racial Appeals Work in American Politics. And I, and I think, uh, LaFleur, that book will be available at the end of this month, right? At the yes. Yes. And for a pre-order on Amazon. That's right. So, <laughs> so order it. <laughs> um, and then we have a uh, last uh, Professor Ashley Jardina. She is an assistant professor in political science at Duke University. Her work focuses on racial attitudes and racial conflict and group identities and voting behaviors in the U.S. Um, and she also has a, a book that's now out called White Identity Politics that's available in most bookstore, so make sure you go out and pick up your copy. Um, you know, under normal times, and it's hard to say that we're in normal times right now, in this panel, uh, we would have our panelists out to, to Minnesota and uh, talk about our thousand lake, 10,000 lakes and, and talk about prints, but right now, um, we're not in normal times. So, um, and part of this panel is motivated by uh, the Black Lives Matter and many of the events that happened here in the Twin Cities with the George Floyd um, killing and the social protests surrounding it. And so we're here to try to see how this makes sense um, and will it have an impact on the upcoming 2020 elections. So um, I have a few questions for, for our panelists. And so I wanted to start with um, Professor Jardina. I have a question. So what we're noticing right now is um, that there are many, that Kelly Loeffler, um, who's running in, in Georgia uh, right now for the U.S. Senate, um, she has recently said about Black Lives Matter, because uh, there are many proposals such as um, sweeping changes with defunding the police, um, looking at uh, systemic racism, but uh, Senator Kelly Loeffler, who's running, has, has actually come out against Black Lives Matter. I quote, she says, this is a very divisive organization, uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, this is very divisive in terms, it's a Marx, it has Marxist principles. Uh, this week they threatened to burn the system down, literally and figuratively, and if they don't get what they want. Um, and of course, uh, the president, Donald Trump, has also said that Black Lives Matter uh, is a hate organization. So I'm just wondering, uh, people who come out opposing Black Lives Matter, are they racist? Or is there something else that's going on here? Yeah, thank you for the question, Michael. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of people in the United States um, and many white Americans hold views that are pretty racially prejudiced and racially conservative. And one of the strongest predictors of whether or not you support or oppose Black Lives Matter in the movement um, is where you fall on a lot of these measures we have of racism. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is that in the midst of all of this um, really impressive optimism, we're seeing a lot of white Americans turning out to support the Black Lives Matter movement, we're seeing a lot of white people show up to the protests, there's still an enormous partisan divide in support for the movement and support for a lot of the policies that the movement is putting forward. And so we can't discount the fact that many white Republicans um, and, you know, 
many white Republicans do hold views that uh, are more racially prejudiced than many white Democrats um, are not supportive of these policies. And so it's strategic for a lot of white politicians running for office to run against the Black Lives Matter movement because a lot of their white constituents don't support the movement or a lot of its policy proposals. Okay, thank you. That's, um, Professor Steven Stugan, I wanted to kind of follow up on, on that question. So, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the recent political ad by uh, President Trump showing pictures. Uh, I don't know if it's here in Minneapolis, but with the protests where people, kind of the negative things in terms of vandalizing businesses, setting fires on businesses. Um, and and, and the, I, I like the end of the commercial where it says, this is Joe Biden's America. Do you want to live in that? And so I wanted to know, is it those type of attacks and those type of political ads, do they have an effect? Because there's there are several authors who've written that Joe Biden, even uh, David Axelrod, who was just on one of the panels last week, said these race these race-based campaign ads just won't work because he's an old working class, middle class, uh, white man. So these type of tax will have no impact. Can you provide some insight on what the research or literature might say about this? Sure. Thanks for that. Um, I'd have to say that the notion that uh, those types of ads couldn't really affect a Joe Biden because he's an older white man, I think that's a little optimistic, maybe overly sanguine in the sense that, no, he's not Kamala Harris, he's not Hillary Clinton, and of course is maybe not susceptible to some of the gendered ways in which Donald Trump might have been able to attack him. He's also, of course, older and he is white, but that does not mean that he's immune from some of the attacks that research has shown um, Republican candidates have often leveled against Democrats, even white Democrats. That is to say that for uh, anyone who's affiliated with the Democratic Party, um, an easy sort of wedge issue are things like crime and race and uh, the stereotype that Democrats are going to be too beholden to their African-American constituents or their constituents of color more broadly. So while Biden might not be as susceptible as other Democrats who, you know, women or people of color, it certainly by no means means that he's immune. Okay, that's, that's, that's excellent. Um, and I'll have a follow-up question later about, about, sure. about that. Um, Professor Parker, uh, I have a question. So you've written extensively about white reactionary uh, movements in, in the United States. And of course, after the election of President Barack Obama, we saw the rise of the Tea Party. Um, and I, I'm just wondering, there's no black candidate on the on the ballot, or at least not yet, for at least for president. And I'm wondering, is there any type of movement brewing right now? Let's say if there's a world where there is a president, uh, Joe Biden, um, do we see anything on the horizon with that? Well, thank you for asking the question. Well, first of all. I mean, back then, you know, uh, what Matt and I argued in the book is that, you know, it was, it was about Obama and everything he represents that occasioned the rise of the Tea Party. Um, and so basically, whatever, when, whenever there's some perceived black progress, there is going to be some white reaction. I mean, we've seen that historically. I mean, we can always go, go all the way back to Reconstruction. I mean, this, this happens all the time. The periodicity varies, but it happens all the time. Um, and we're seeing it again right now. So basically what I'm suggesting here is if we don't get Obama, 
we don't have, we don't get Trump. If Obama's not president, Trump does not get elected, right? So let's get that off the table right now. Um, but I do, I, I don't see any, we're already seeing a reaction right now with the Black Lives Matter, right? So the reaction is already uh, here, right? Think about what's going on with COVID-19. So I think, I'm, I'm sure all of us on this panel knew that as soon as COVID hit, um, we were going to discover race-based disparities. I know Larry knows this, you know, he's part of the Robert Wood Johnson family, as am I. And um, so we knew there was going to be, we were going to see race-based health disparities. What's crazy, but also, but, but also deeply disturbing is that as soon as these race-based health disparities were disseminated, at least the knowledge of them were disseminated, you know, then we start seeing Trump trying to pull back and wanting to open everything up. And then we start seeing these anti-lockdown protesters all over the place. So I, so I think there, there, there's a reaction already here, right? And it's just going to continue apace, you know, with the movement, with the continued freedom struggle. We saw the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. This is just another phase of the freedom struggle, if you ask me. So as long as we see an active phase of the freedom struggle, we're going to see some white reaction. Okay. That's so that, I mean, you, you, and I wanted to follow up on that. And by the way, I, I noticed that uh, that jersey you're wearing. Uh, trying to make a statement here. Yes, yes. So, I, so I, I had a question again about um, speaking of symbols, right? And obviously, Black Lives Matter. Colin Kaepernick became a symbol of the Black Lives Matter movement. And also, and actually, this question could be for for all the panelists to to jump in. Um, do these, we see a, this move to kind of like move to get rid of Confederate flags, monuments across the country. Um, and many people are saying this is kind of a solution to getting rid of some of the systemic uh, racism that's going on. So do you think by moving many of these symbols like NASCAR moved their symbol, and I think even the the, Washington, the team in Washington, the professional football team is talking about removing uh, their nickname. I mean, what, how does this play into the political picture? Could you provide some insight? Because the president's been, been using this type of symbolism for a while. Could it, how would it, is it effective in, in addressing systemic racism? And also how could it be used in a political context? So Professor Parker, and then we can go to the rest of the panel. Okay, sure. Um, I think, I think it's, I think it's going to, I think it's going to make the political environment even worse um, because it's, you know the Confederate flag. I mean, I don't know if anyone's has seen this. I'm sure you guys have seen this piece in the New York Times. Um, I forgot the woman's name, but she says, you know, my body is um, is a Confederate monument. When she's talking about, she has rape-colored skin, right? That and the whole point is like, how can these people celebrate, um, you know? The, the South, right, or or the lost cause, given that, you know, all this, this rape and oppression was going on, right? That's, to many of us who are Black, I would venture to say to all of us that are Black, that's what that flag represents. Um, and so, and so even though you have some of these, um, you know, some of white people, you know, who celebrate the Confederate flag and this, uh, the late uh, sociologist John Shelton Reed and, and, and uh, Howard Odom wrote extensively on this, that there is this Southern identity part of which is consistent with or commensurate with, you know, the celebration of this lost cause. Now, I don't know if these people just don't know history 
or or they, they just want to ignore it or just motivated reasoning, if you will. But the, the problem is, is that if you take this away from them, right, they feel like that's part of their identity, right? Now, I'm just confining this to the South for right now. Um, and so that's going to cause some backlash, right? And then if you go beyond the South, right, and we think about, um, we see all these Confederate battle flags, you know, at, 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 I refuse to call him President Trump, at 45 rallies, right? That's not about Southern heritage. That's about something else. That's about racial oppression. So when you remove, start removing those symbols, A, and then B, these nicknames, right, like the team from Washington, the Redskins, and now you have other teams that are reviewing this, right, the Cleveland Indians, right, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the Atlanta Braves. Um, and so for a lot of these people, they have, and I have friends who are fans of these teams and white friends, if you will, and I don't really perceive them to be racist, but they cling to these nicknames, right? These are educated people, some of whom are our colleagues, right? Who love the quote unquote Redskins and love the Braves and love the Indians, right? So I wouldn't say it'd be a racial backlash per se from them, right? I think that's more of this attachment to, this, to these symbols or these teams with, with whom they grew up. But for a lot of these people, yes, you know, you're ripping away, um, you know, these symbols with whom or with which they identify, right? And most of it is about uh, oppression of people of color. Professor Jardina, um, could you follow up on that? Um, uh, Professor Parker was saying this idea, because most people tend to think when people are against Black Lives Matter or, or, or whether or not they're supporting a Confederate flag, that this is, there's some type of racial animus in it. And so I, I, I know that um, you're saying that there might be something else that's involved um, behind these Confederate symbols. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I wanna do first is just uh, echo Chris's important point about the relationship between sort of Southern pride and Southern history and support for the flag. You know, there's some evidence that the less you know about Southern history, the more likely you are to support Confederate symbols. And so it's clear that they're often uh, more about things with respect to race. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about in my own work is the fact that we often think about racism and racial prejudice as just sort of this um, set of stereotypes that your grandmother or your mother taught you um, that mean that you don't like people of color or you um, you know, you, you think uh, that they don't work hard enough or, um, you know, a host of other negative attributes. And I think that what we have to keep in mind is that for a lot of white Americans and a lot of white Americans who are flying their Confederate flags right next to their Trump flags in parts of the United States, that what they're also worried about is the loss of power and status that racial equality means for white people in the United States. And so that's what I mean when I think that there's more than just racial animus here, there's also this feeling of threat and that white, many white Americans feel like the election of Obama, the changing demographics of the nation, that this represents something um, more than just the sort of hostility or animus that they might have. Um, the other thing I wanted to say too is that you know, symbols do matter. The Most of the Confederate symbols in the United States were put in place well after the Civil War as a means of sort of intimidating Black Americans and, and trying to reassert uh, sort of white power in the South and across the country. And so the fact that they're being removed um, is not inconsequential. But I think the thing that we need to talk about is to what extent are these really going to help us achieve racial equality is taking down these symbols, right? 
Um, we need to have real serious conversations instead about how do we close the wealth gap between black and white Americans? Um, how do we reform policing in the United States? How do we deal with um, unequal housing and unequal schools? Uh, that's the important conversation. And that's not the conversation that I'm seeing the news pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, a very interesting point because, you know, most of us um, would think that when you, white solidarity, you know, people are like, there's no way when you think of white solidarity, it's KKK, surely it's, it's racist, right? But when we say that to racial and ethnic minority groups, it's like, oh, that's, that's fine, right? Because they've been marginalized groups and so they built it based on a history of discrimination. Um, but the argument that you're making, which is, is quite subtle, that whites are actually becoming a minority in many states, right? In, in California, in Texas, and by 2050, whites will not be the majority uh, in the population. And so you're seeing a lot of what's being tapped in by the Trump administration is this appeal where whites are now starting to feel an identity, like I am white. Um, so, so that is that's a very interesting and subtle point. We can get back to it. Um, but uh, Professor Stevens Dugan, I, I had a question, a follow-up question about um, the attacks on Biden. So you're saying he's not immune to it. Uh, so does that make his VP choice <laughs> even more important? Like based on what you've said, because I mean, Biden said he's going to pick a woman. I mean, and he said he's going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. I mean, these are things that Barack Obama would never say. It probably probably couldn't get away with either, right? So yeah. is, is Biden being a little cavalier about this based on what you said earlier about he could be impacted by this? Well, I mean, I think you raise a lot of good points. One, Biden is not constrained in the way that Obama was, right? Just by virtue of being that older white male Democrat, he doesn't necessarily have to run away from race to the degree that we saw with Obama. Um, his association with people of color, I mean, I think it will rile up some on the right, uh, you know, those racially conservative whites, they won't be excited about probably a woman VP pick, even if she is, um, say, a white woman, and certainly not a black woman. But I think this is also part of a larger question of what strategy the Democratic Party is hoping to pursue. So there's often this sort of obsession with, you know, the working class whites or non-college educated whites or, you know, whatever we're calling them these days, maybe also to some degree also soccer moms and suburban moms and things of that nature. And so one sort of um, strategy that they've historically pursued is this kind of obsession with those groups, right? So like, what pick does he make? If he picks a black woman, is it going to isolate those people? Are they going to run to, you know, the Republican Party? Or are they just going to stay home? And there's you know, that sort of um, precarity that's involved with the choice that he might make. But on the other hand, there's another option and another strategy that the Democratic Party could pursue, but has not necessarily historically done so. And that's an option of really choosing a VP uh, candidate, um, most likely, I think, a woman of color who could really mobilize and energize their base of people of color. And that's a part of the discussion that I don't think that we hear as much about. And so, yeah, we can worry about the isolation or 
um, how that might turn off some voters, but there's also the flip side of that where you can really energize and mobilize a base, particularly for black women who we know have historically been some of the most loyal supporters of the Democratic Party. And so that's a strategy that could also be pursued. But I think um, this sort of obsession with working class whites kinds of kind, tends to uh, cloud our view on the benefits that could be associated with that. And one other thing that I'd like to say about that point, you know, that there is, uh, you know this, you know, there is Black people in states like Michigan, right? There's Black people in Detroit, there's Black people in Philly, there's Black people, you know, in Milwaukee, places that, you know, Trump won, uh, or states that Trump won that are likely to be battlegrounds this year. And if you can mobilize people of color on the left, uh, potentially through a VP pick, but not only through that symbol, um, there might not have to be so much concern about what that's going to do to uh, isolate uh, some working class whites on the other side. Yeah, that, that's a, a fascinating point because I, I was going to actually anticipate a, a later question of, we're so concerned about um, the appeals to whites in, in many of these battleground states, but with the growing number of racial and ethnic minorities as they get incorporated into the, to the electorate, that Democrats are thinking that, hey, maybe we can still win um, without necessarily, that, that we, can, we can withstand a Trump type of election of racial appeals. Um, but I'm curious, and I, and I can ask all the panelists too, I wanna put you on the spot, Black Lives Matter has really, uh, I mean, it's been prominent since, you know, the Michael Brown um, shooting, but also, I mean, recently with the George Floyd um, killing. And so I'm just thinking like Amy Klobuchar, our, our own senator here in Minnesota, chances of being VP, gone after, after George Floyd. Um, uh, Kamala Harris, I mean, she's been brought up but her history as a prosecutor has made her very, people in the Black Lives Matter really kind of suspicious of her. And then Val Demings, the other uh, black woman who's being considered as a you know, police chief. And so I'm just wondering like, what type of impact, I mean, will Biden take that into consideration? Um, will they get kept off of the ticket because of this, because Black Lives Matter activists may not want a candidate with that type of background. In the past, those backgrounds were valued, but now in this environment, maybe less so. Uh, is that question for me specifically or? Oh yes, you could take it. Um, you know, it's hard to say because it's hard to say where is Biden, honestly. So um, I don't have a firm opinion on that in terms of what he's likely to do. I do think that that criminal justice uh, background is likely to hurt those potential choices. But I, I don't necessarily think that will keep them off of the ticket because there's a certain level of symbolism and they might have a bit more latitude than say an Amy Klobuchar in that same sort of position. So I don't think that necessarily uh, completely excludes them from a uh, potential choice for him. Um, so can I speak to this? So I think yes, press part. Um, Floor is right. Um, let me just put a slightly different spin on it. I think so for whatever, I mean, so one thing we have to be clear about, whether or not Black Lives Matter, whether or not people that support the movement are actually going to go to the polls, right? I mean, we have to establish that first. And I'm not sure how well that's been established. A, B, for whatever support that they might lose, that Biden might lose and Democrats might lose, 
from Black Lives Matter activists from picking Val Demings or Kamala Harris, um, Amy Klobuchar, that, that's not even a consideration, right? He needs to have a black woman. Um, it'll be offset by uh, the comfort that a law enforcement background uh, would give to independents, right? So I think that whatever, whatever uh, support the Democrats would lose from Black Lives Matter activists, I think they would more than make up for when it comes to independents and having them mobilize and vote for Democrats this time. Professor Jardina, going to weigh in? Yeah, I don't have a good hunch about who the likely pick is going to be, but I imagine that the Biden campaign is sitting there thinking about whether there's going to be sufficient turnout from people who are so angry at Trump or whether they need to really find someone who's going to help mobilize uh, liberal white Democrats and people of color because, uh, as Dr. Parker said, turnout is one of the most important questions moving into 2020. And, and, you know, add the coronavirus on top of everything, compounding concerns about turnout. Um, you know, it's not just what do what does public opinion look like right now, but it's to what extent are people who are supportive of the Democratic Party and supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, are they going to show up and vote? And uh, we don't know what the answer to that question is right now. Professor Stevens, Jardina, is, and this is for all the panelists, but I'll start with you. Um, is this just a moment or is this, are we seeing a changing landscape? I mean, we're seeing that public opinion polls support for Black Lives Matter in 2015. I mean, you couldn't find a majority other than Blacks supporting um, this, uh, this movement. I mean, is this a change in the way that politics is going to be handled at the federal level and the national level? Or is this just a brief moment in time with George Floyd, the coronavirus, and then once everything's pa everything passes, we'll go back to normal politics. Well, I think of history as any teacher that I am probably not that optimistic. I think this is more likely to be a political moment versus real systemic change. And I think this goes back to the points made earlier by Professor Parker and Professor Giardino, which is essentially that a lot of what we're seeing is symbolism, right? So it's easy to say, you know, we're taking away Aunt Jemima or Uncle Ben or things like that, or even, you know, Confederate symbols that do matter. I don't want to discount that these symbols uh, don't have meaning. But when it comes to real systemic change, um, just as a student of history and of politics, my sense is that there are going to be, you know, a non it's likely that very few white Americans are really going to want to kind of risk their own privilege and status in the racial hierarchy to make the true systematic change that is needed. Um, but, you know, I'd love to be proven wrong on that. Uh, can I speak on this, please? Professor Parker, um, yes. So I think, so for uh, Professor uh, Stevens Dugan, I mean, I mean, I mean, I do, I, I see exactly where you, where you're coming from. I'm a, I'm a black man in America, you know, I gotta be skeptical about stuff. Um, Having said that, um, I, I, I mean, I'm of two minds on this. I mean, that's a $64,000 question, whether or not this is a movement or a moment. And I go back and forth on that um, with some frequency. You know, on the one hand, you know, we've seen this happen several times. And I said this in an interview recently. It's like every time something like this happens, you know, black people are Charlie Brown and white people's Lucy, right? Always snatching the ball away at the last second. And is this, and is this another one of those moments? Um, so what gives me some hope is that, you know, I, there was a recent survey done of protesters in New York City, 61% of whom were white and roughly 20% were black, right? So that gives me some hope. And we see 
just how diverse uh, these protests are, right? I mean, that's, that, that's really heartening from that perspective. Um, the problem, if you will, is that there are all of these, there's this confluence of events. I mean, you've, you've mentioned them, uh, Professor Menta, that are all happening simultaneously, right? We have COVID-19, the racial health disparities, right? We see the, the, the murder of, of George Floyd there in, in, in Minneapolis, right? And then you have a, a racist president, right? Well, we've always had racist presidents from time to time. Most of us, you know, who know anything about healthcare and about race know that there are the disparities. They've always been around. They just come more and more to, to the fore. And this would not be the first time that police brutality has sparked, you know, some kind of, some uprising. We saw it in the 1960s. Um, so, I mean, so one can make a case, you know, either way. I, I'm, I have to say, ultimately, I'm, I'm on the side of uh, Professor Dugan Stevens. It's like, you gotta, you, you gotta show me, because right now I, 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 I'm not a huge believer. Because what happens when COVID goes away, you know, and, and Biff, you know, and Tiffany, they're like, oh shoot, okay, all right, we don't have time to protest anymore. We gotta go shopping or we gotta go surfing, right? So I, I'm a little concerned about that. Right now, there's a captive audience. What happens when thing, things return to some semblance of normalcy? That's what concerns me. And can I, um, so I want to go to a, a question from, from our audience, and, uh, and it's a nice, nice follow-up to what you were uh, just saying, uh, Professor Parker. And uh, one, uh, one audience member wants to know, is there a structure to Black Lives Matter? Is there anyone who is a national leader in a movement similar to Dr. Martin Luther King in, in the 1950s and the 1960s? Well, I'll say, I mean, they were founded by, or the movement was founded by three queer women of color. Um, so to that extent, I guess you could call them leaders, but I think the movement prides itself on being what they would call leaderful, not leaderless, in the sense that um, you can't necessarily speak to, uh, point to sort of one national spokesperson, but they kind of, I, I can't speak for the movement, but I think they sort of envision themselves as having leaders all about um, you know, it's more decentralized, but that the idea that you're going to have this sort of one iconic leader who speaks for the group and makes the group platform, um, I don't think that's kind of how they envision uh, their movement. And, you know, there's pros and cons that comes with that type of structural uh, organization. Anyone else want to shut it? Okay. Um. Yeah, and that's and and that's one that's one challenge that you'll have with these type of organizations that there isn't it's not necessarily the NAACP, the Urban League, where you have people lobbying in Congress. You're seeing changes at you know at the state and local levels, uh, but not necessarily the big push at the federal level. Um, so so that's that's a that's a, a great question and a good answer. Um, uh, here's another question. Um, again, relate to Black Lives Matter. Will, will we see more politicians making a distinction between supporting the notion that Black Lives Matter and being able to say, while not supporting the organization or their platform? So essentially they can say they support it, but not do anything substantive. Mm. Professor Jardina. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is pretty consistent with what we're observing when we just think about white Democrats' attitudes about the movement and a lot of the policies that the movement supports. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noted is if you look at 
public opinion polls, a lot of white liberals are becoming much more supportive of um, both the movement, of uh, reducing racial inequality in the abstract, um, you know, of things that, uh, of taking down Confederate symbols. But when you actually ask uh, whites on both sides of the partisan aisle, you know, do you support reparations? Do you support actual policies that would help uh, really um, create greater racial equality in the United States, uh, most white Americans aren't really on board, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And so, you know, I think that it's, um, it's an easy gesture for politicians to say they support the goals of the movement. It's going to garner a lot of support from white Democrats when they do so. Uh, but the uh, fact of the matter is that the moment uh, Democrats start talking about reparations, they probably are going to lose some support from some white Democrats. So can, can I just uh, just piggyback yes, on what Professor, Professor Jardina said? Um, so yeah, so that's what uh, Professor Jardina is referring to is what's typically known in the in the discipline as a principal policy gap, right? So you have widespread support for these principles, but when it actually comes down to the rubber hitting the road, right? When it comes to implementation of some kind of substantive policy, that's where you lose all support. Same thing happened, um, and you know these Michigan people uh, know who this is, Schumann and. And Bobo and uh, Steve's book, uh, Racial Attitudes in America, where they show how the principal policy gap, you know, remained pretty wide in the South um, in the 50s and even all the way through the 60s, right? I mean, so you had white Southerners that became, that were more for equal rights, you know, in an abstract sense, but when it actually came down to integrating their kids in the same school as black kids, they wanted no parts of that. Yeah, exactly. Just to, you know, add to that a really important point. When you look at surveys asking white Americans, how do you feel about uh, a wealth tax? How do you feel about reparations? How do you feel about busing your kids to reduce segregation? How do you feel about building affordable housing in your neighborhood to increase the diversity of your neighborhood? White Democrats, the same ones who say that they're supportive of racial equality, aren't very supportive of those policies. Now, do we see, following up on that, on that question, do you see any differences with the by generation, are younger people more supportive of these these substantive policies, or is it mostly older people who are opposed to them? Does, do we see any differences there? Yeah, the younger people are more progressive in their attitudes towards these policies. Absolutely, there are definitely generational differences, but they're not as large as you might expect them to be either. So, and often, yeah. can I just add one point on that? Often yes. the research suggests that, um, you know, say for example, white millennials are actually closer to their parents and their racial attitudes than they are to their millennial peers of color. So that is to say that even if they are more progressive uh, than older white Americans, they're not as progressive as other uh, people of their generation who are people of color. And so that suggests that even you know, as we get maybe, quote unquote, generational replacement, there's still likely to be a gap between uh, the interests and the policy preferences of people of color and their white counterparts. So, so can, I, can I just add to what uh, Professor um, Duke and Stevens said? Um, that, so, I mean, this whole cohort replacement thing was written about as far back as the 1980s, right? And by this, it was really this famous piece by the sociologist Fireball and Davis, um, in which they, you know, said that there should Professor be- Professor Parker, could you, I'm sorry, could you explain cohort replacement? Just... Co yeah, well, I was, I was getting ready to get to that. 
Um, so it's this idea that when older, more quote unquote racist or conservative, if you will, white cohorts die off, they would be replaced by more progressive white cohorts. Um, and that was almost 40 years ago and we were still having the same problems, right? So this whole sort of cohort replacement thing um, isn't working. And just to what um, Professor Dugan Stevens said, it's like, uh, we're not seeing, you know, these, these kids that are departing too far from what their parents are. They're closer to their parents than they are to their uh, millennial peers. And yeah, and so the political socialization literature is, is shot through with these kind of results where, where you have this socialization that goes from parent to child. Good points. Um, I want to go to another question by um, an audience member. Uh, let's see. Okay, this is a, a little different. Um, and this relates to the actual, um, let me see this, let me scroll through. I lost the question. So the question was about turnout. And do you think that um, even though Black Lives Matter and this, this idea of mobilizing people who aren't normally participating um, in, in, in politics that, yes, they may have all this energy, but there might be these different efforts to try to stop people from actually getting to the polls. Um, we've, we've, we've seen news reports now of, of possibly closing some uh, precincts um, um, in, in some of these battleground states. And we've also heard of, uh, and the president has actually, President Trump has actually come out and said that he's kind of against the mail-in balloting. Um, uh, so, I, so the audience member is, is concerned about what type of impact could this have um, on, on the election? Um, so we could start with uh, Professor um, Stevens Dugan. Take a shot sure. at um, I'd like to note one point, and this is also a plug for the research of a colleague of ours, uh, Davin Phoenix. I think one of the things that uh, people sort of assume is that because people on the left, uh, namely people of color, are angry, that this is actually going to translate to people showing up at the polls. And his research would actually argue that for Black Americans um, and uh, to some extent, other people of color, anger does not mobilize in the way that we've historically seen with, um, you know, their white counterparts. And that also speaks to, I think, you know, Professor Parker's book on, uh, you know, the Tea Party and reactionary politics. So anger tends to be a mobilizing force for white Americans, but it doesn't necessarily translate into traditional means of participation for Black people, right? So they might get angry and they might go protest, but that doesn't uh, necessarily mean that they're going to show up at the polls in November. So taking, you know, just uh, trying to clarify that, uh, I don't think Democrats should rest on the notion that like, oh, because people are angry and they're in the streets and they're protesting, that this means that uh, they're necessarily going to turn out in large numbers for uh, Biden in the fall. So there has to be a mobilization game on the ground um, and anger and just being anti-Trump research suggests that that's not enough. Now, in terms of some of the institutional factors in, that are uh, preventing people from showing up to the polls, we should be worried. Um, and I'd like to hear more of a plan about how there's gonna be um, an opportunity to mobilize these people, especially given COVID, right? So you have people, you know, we're expecting to see mass evictions where people will be um, much more, you know, not 
tied to a stable address and things of those natures, attacks on mail-in uh, mail voting, absentee voting, um, closing of polling places. These are all things that I, you know, um, trying to keep my academic hat on and not my partisan hat, but I would hope that Democrats are thinking about a ground game to um, get people mobilized and to keep people enthused because we're likely to see long polling lines. We're likely to see people potentially literally putting their lives at risk to go to the polls in the midst of a pandemic. So um, I think the person who posed that question has a right to be concerned. Can I, can I speak to this for a second? Um, so, I mean, so let me just push back on that a little bit. And I'll, and I'll say this, that some of the research, some experimental research that, um, that I've done recently. So, so I would say that, and I've read Professor Phoenix's book, but what I would say is that none of the research that he's done or other people have done has been based on Trump. And Trump is a singular threat. Um, so some of the, like I do some consulting work on the side. So I am able to put these little experiments and stuff together. And it's unbelievable how mobilized black folks are, um, you know, how, how committed they are to, a, to turning out or in their enthusiasm. Um, when we start asking questions about Trump and about his handling of COVID. Black people are pissed off right now, right? And so I would not underestimate that. Second, I've also done some other, some other work showing that the extent to which um, Black people see Trump as a threat, even after accounting for a host and a variety of other controls, that they're still committed to turning out, right? Over and above all the other more conventional predictors. So, so I would I would push back on 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 Professor Phoenix's thesis at least as it pertains to to Trump, given the work that I've I've done recently, and that now now the threat I'm thinking the threat might have to do something with anger, right, and then motivating them to get out. I don't know for sure because we didn't ask questions about anger qua anger. It was really just about Trump. So it could be something else pushing them out there. It could be a sense of injustice, right? Um, but but I'm just saying that I I think in this moment anti-Trump is enough to mobilize people of color. Can I ask a question to that? So do you think yes, that there's some me. sort of um, political learning that took place between 2016 and uh, 2020? Because yep. Uh, yep. why, okay, all right. Let me expand on that just for a second, right? So before, I don't think a lot of black folks thought that this guy was actually gonna win, right? So now this guy gets in the office and he's doing all of these shady things and he's saying all of these shady things and they see how anti-black he is now. I mean, for sure. Before it might've been speculation. Now it's a fact. Okay, I, I guess. I, I, yeah, I think maybe they're maybe we're all learning that his presidency is worse than we might've anticipated. But I guess we had the information, the writing was on the wall in 2016. It was, it was. <laughs> well, Professor Park, I, I was going to say, I'm sure it's more than black people that were surprised that um, Donald Trump was was going to win the presidency. I mean, he came very close to winning the state of Minnesota, too. Um, and hey, so, hey, hey, I was one of the people that predicted he was going to win. So this is one black person who wasn't surprised. Yeah. <laughs> so the, so the <laughs> strategy... So anyway, I, I have, let me, let me get to the questions up here because I, I have other questions, but um, let's see, let's see, what about, um, oh, it's just so many good ones. Um, 
So, uh, so one uh, respondent uh, audience member wants to know um, about Black Lives Matter and about racism with Blacks. Um, will it start to include other minorities as well? Do you think that it will become from, and, and not necessarily the All Lives Matter retort that we hear, but will it start including other racial and ethnic groups um, in their coalition? Or maybe they already have. Uh, any, anyone want? Take a shot at that question. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I will. I will provide a brief reply. Um, you know, my my understanding of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Again, it's it's broadly construed uh, that it does uh, include uh, other group uh, other groups or under marginalized groups, and particularly not just on race, but on sexual orientation. Um, so it, it, it's a much broader movement, but obviously with the George Floyd, it's focused mostly on, on Blacks and their treatment with, with the police. So um, it, it would be interesting to see if they will make this um, a, a much broader group beyond, uh, beyond Blacks. But right now it's mostly Blacks and the diversity within the Black community. I do have one thing I want to add that I've been thinking about with respect to that, you know, which is that after Trump won, um, you know, when we think about what's transpired in the years during his administration, we've seen women turn out to protest um, over concern about women's rights. We've seen black Americans turn out to protest in response to George Floyd and all of the um, inequalities in the United States. But one thing to think about is Trump's campaign was enormously successful because he ran um, almost initially and then almost entirely on an anti-immigration campaign. And that's always been his go-to prior to the pandemic for how to sort of rally his base. And we haven't really seen, uh, you know, reactionary responsive um, so sort of pro-immigration or in support of immigrants or in support of the Latino community. And I think that's kind of interesting. That's kind of the missing constituency here that's pushing back against Trump. And one thing I'm wondering about is, you know, given the opportunity moving into the election season, is Trump going to try to kind of return to those old tactics and will they be effective? Yeah, I, I, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah, that is a very interesting question. And I, 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 I wish we knew that answer. I mean, obviously, uh, Professor Stevens Dugan and uh, Professor Parker are fairly skeptical about about this, but uh, um, uh, we shall see, right? Okay, Let's just get a vaccine. Let's get a vaccine first. And then we'll really Mike, let me just add, add one other thing. So there's like a, a a tiny rift in, uh, I haven't got all the way to Latinx yet, in the Latino community uh, when it comes to uh, support for Black Lives Matter. Because you do have some who recognize that, you know, this is not only happening to Black folks, but it's also happening to, to, to brown folks as well. But then again, you have this, you have another portion of the Latino community who are, you know, they're, they're anti-Black, right? Um, and so you, clearly you're not getting participation from them. And so, you know, so you have this divide right now in the Latino community. Um, there are some who are really down with Black Lives Matter and others who are like, that's not for us. That's not happening to us. That's, that applies to those folks over there. And, and you're particularly seeing it in these states where, um, where Latinos, where, where it's, they're the largest minority group in, you know, California. Uh, we know Texas is changing. 
Um, and so we, we might see those battles, we've seen those battles played out like in at the cities, like with Los Angeles, um, but it'll be interesting to see how that happens at a statewide once Latinos start to grow. Will there be a coalition or will there be more, more conflict? And we know there's extensive research on, on that particular topic. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you this question just to, to lighten it a little bit. It's not related to uh, Black Lives Matter, but um, it says, with so many liberal professors, of course we're not liberal, are we? Uh, teachers and students in today's schools that are recently graduated, um, is there a massive wave of liberalism coming? Is the Republican Party doomed? And we kind of heard these type of arguments, particularly when Obama won in 2008, that this is a, is the country's changing, demographics are telling the story. Now, now, obviously, that was interrupted with the election of Donald Trump for reasons pointed out by Professor Parker in his Tea Party book. But uh, is this just a, is Trump just a momentary bump in the road for where this country is headed? What's that? <laughs> Did you really say bump in a row? <laughs> well, I mean, let me explain this to you. Hey, the most you can do is two terms. <laughs> bump in a row. Look, let me tell you something. These people have always been here, right? They ain't going anyplace. They always been here. They're going to be here, right? I'm just saying that. Uh, Trump actually bought them out. And like I've argued other places. I know this is going to be controversial. You guys are going to look askance at me or give me the side eye, but I'm telling you right now, this dude is one of the best things that's happening in this country. Let me unpack that for a second. Okay. <laughs> People can no longer deny that this is a fundamentally racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic country, period. Before that, you know, there was some plausible deniability. Oh, are you sure that was sexism? Oh, are you sure that was racism? Really? Right? People are tired of getting gaslit. And so now this guy is sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. What are you going to say? It's right there, right? And all these people still support him. He still got, what, like 85% support from 87 percent maybe even 90% support from Republicans? Come on. These people have always been here. It's not like they just came out of nowhere and they're going to remain here. So to answer your question, hell no, he's not a bump in the road. And to add to that, I would say that he's um, he's kind of opened the playbook for other politicians in the sense that, you know, maybe there was some sort of sense that, you know, you couldn't say that or you couldn't do that or you couldn't be so overtly uh, racist. But uh, I think he's taught others, you know, you gave the example of uh, Kelly Leffler in uh, Georgia. They know that, like, to some degree, they can do this without uh, consequence from their base. Yeah, and it turns out that liberal college professors are not that effective at indoctrinating the young minds of the American <laughs> public. But, you know, even even so, I, it's not really clear that liberalism is sweeping the United States. I mean, Trump did win in 2016, like, you know, to echo Dr. Barker and Dr. Stevens to the point, right? You know, and Plenty of Republicans, the majority of Republicans support Trump. The majority of Republicans, when they turn out to vote in 2020, they're going to vote for Donald Trump. 
So let me let me just add let me just add to yeah, uh, what you just said real quick. So people wonder why you know Trump retained so much support from Republicans, and and it goes back to uh, what Professor Jardine had said a little earlier. Look, it's this is not about material self interest, right? This is not about party per se. This is about these white people are concerned that they're losing their way of life, right? And Trump is the last thing standing between them and the rest of us, progressive, people of color, feminists, immigrants, period. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, the one thing I can say as a liberal professors, conservative professors, it's hard. People like to think the students come to classes like there's a blank slate. Trust me, they're not a blank slate. They already believe what they believe before they came to the classroom. And in 16 weeks is not going to change it. So if you think that your your student is being brainwashed, trust me, the university isn't the one that's doing it. You probably did a good job yourself of doing that. So um, and the research validates that too. Uh, let's see. Uh, let me, oh, so someone had a question. Let's keep it light here. Kanye West um, is running for president. Um, do you think, and I don't, I don't even think Kanye is really connected with Black Lives Matter, but, but in terms of this election, um, could he siphon votes away from, from Biden? What do you guys think? Um, I mean, I don't, I wasn't in uh, Professor Parker's camp. I didn't see Trump coming. So I think anything is possible. And I think part of how we got Trump is because of the sort of media fascination with him very early on that allowed him, you know, that propelled him uh, in some of those early primaries. And so my sense is if we don't want uh, Kanye West siphoning votes, we should really kind of ignore this and not give him too much of the sort of media attention that he's craving. Oh. Professor Stevens Dugan, someone said that Kanye just ended his presidential run today. Oh, <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> that was short lived. Wow. Okay. Kanye West. <laughs> All right. Let's move to something. Um, something else. Oh, an, an interesting uh, question, um, and I, I don't know if this is said in jest or not, but. It said, Professor Parker, did you just say that old conservative is the same as an old racist? Uh, no, I, well, what I did was I used them interchangeably, right? And I, and I met like the reactionary kind, not, not, not a more, not a more like sort of uh, Bob Dole, like, you know, uh, no, they're not, they're not the same. Although some people would call people who are conservative on race racist, and well, you call me one. I can I call people who are racially conservative racist too. So <laughs> so if that's the question, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But if we're talking about more establishment conservatives, you know, who are just more about you know smaller government or limited government um, and personal responsibility, that's different, right? You one doesn't necessarily one is not necessarily a racist if one believes in those things. But if you are one is racially conservative. Yes, you're racist. Okay. 
Professor Jardina, do you have, I mean, again, just kind of going back to your conversation about this idea of, 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 a, of a white identity, I think this is gonna to have to be the last, last question, response. Oh, you mean in response to the uh, question about conservatives? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that, um, there was a difference between, you know, what we sometimes call Rockefeller Republicans and members of the sort of modern conservative party. But, you know, I, I would say too that the, you know, policies historically in the United States that promote smaller government, that, that you know, promote a smaller welfare state, it's really hard to separate those from race in the United States. And uh, one thing that I would argue, and I think that my research supports is that that's one way in which white Americans maintain unequal power in the United States. It's one reason why whites have 80% of the wealth in the United States and that black Americans are uh, unable to, you know, uh, acquire much of it. We can go back to the period of time in the 60s and 70s and 80s and even before then when uh, quote unquote old conservatives were, you know, in power um, trying to, you know, prevent wealth redistribution and, and trying uh, and supporting things like redlining that have led to massive wealth inequality. And um, to say that that wasn't about race uh, is really, I think, um, obscuring the reality of American history in the United States. And so are they the same as today's overtly blatant racists? No, but were they also complicit in helping to maintain a system of racial inequality in the United States? Absolutely. Well, we're, we're out of time, um, which we had longer, but um, I want to thank my uh, guests for, for joining us, uh, Professor LaFleur Stevens-Dugan, Professor Ashley Jardina, and Professor Christopher Parker, um, uh, Michael Menta. Um, thank you. You guys have a great day, and um, uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you.